Anyways, if anyone came from far away, um, a special round of uh, thanks for coming tonight. Are there any new people here? Completely new? To the practice, or just to CIMC? Any experience meditating, or? A little bit, okay, okay, good. All right, well hopefully in the talk tonight we'll get at some of the, it's, um, we'll get at some of the basic concepts of the, of the teachings um, throughout and not just work with the specific sutta or teaching. Um, perhaps we come here because uh, there's a difficulty in life that we wanna work with or perhaps it's, it's something that's uh, very, perhaps we, we wanna just grow and expand a bit in our minds. There's usually a couple of ways of coming into being interested in, uh, in the Dharma teachings. Um, maybe you were just walking by. You came in to get out of the cold. I doubt it, though. Um, the, the Buddhist teaching is likened to that of, of a doctor. And that's because you go to a doctor when you have a problem. And he diagnoses it, and hopefully he can help you heal. Right? So we're, probably, we're all doing that in a certain way, being here. Usually physical doctors work with the, with the body, and we're working with the heart and the mind. That's how the, what the Buddha works with. This doesn't look like much of a doctor's office, does it? Can you think you're coming to a doctor's office? But really, it's sort of like that. Only thing is the doctor. All we got left of the doctor is a little statue up here. <laughs> uh, where's the medicine, though? The medicine is in the teachings. It's been preserved very well for 2,500 years. And I'll do my best to distribute a little bit of it. Okay, that's my task tonight. Tonight's teaching is on the fire sermon, and it's something that we can all probably relate to in a very direct way inside ourselves, because we've all probably been burned in one way or another. And we can probably relate to the image of being burned ourselves. Uh, It's a burn. There's many popular ways of looking at it. Not so popular, but (laughs) popular parlance. And we all probably common, commonly know that we burn others, too. We might have habit patterns that, that over and over again we act out on. I certainly have patterns. Um, and, and so that's really what this, this teaching gets at. It, can you relate to that? Because everyone here, everyone here feels like they've been burned in life, or that they burned others. Yeah? Have you ever found coolness? The face of burning? Well, that's what the Buddhist teachings are about. It's finding coolness in the face of that burning. But we start with the burn. The Buddha actually taught one thing. He taught suffering or that which causes us problems in the end of that, the way to get out. So that's how we frame all of the work that we do in a certain way. Um, when we were kids, maybe we, uh, maybe we were told, we touched the hot stove and we were told by a parent that we shouldn't do that. Maybe we got that lesson pretty quick. Right? didn't take us too many times not to go back to the hot stove. But somehow it seems a lot more complex and difficult with the heart, matters of the heart and the mind. And it seems that we keep going back again and again and touching that hot stove. So what I want to explore with you tonight are some reflections on this fire sutta and why the burn keeps happening in our lives and ways that we can stop the burn. And so it's a, it's a pretty direct and, and uh, strong teaching. It was actually the third teaching the Buddha ever gave, supposedly. Okay? So it's really one of the foundational teachings. And I'll read just from the sutta. We'll be going through the sutta in pieces throughout the, the time here. The sutta begins, monks, because he was actually teaching to a bunch of uh, Brahmins, that's in old India, that were fire worshippers. 
And as with many skillful teachers, he taught in the, the words, the language, the parlance that would be most effective in terms of reaching his listeners. So supposedly he was talking to a thousand, you never know, uh, a thousand of these monks that were in a, a Brahmanical tradition, an old Vedic tradition in India. So he said monks. And again, they worshiped fire, so he used the imagery of fire. Monks, the all is a flame. The all. Let's explain that. The eye is a flame. The ears are a flame. All the senses are a flame. You went through each one. Okay? And the way that we, res- we respond to those internally. On fire with what? See, it's a very hard direct teaching in the beginning. Uh, on fire with what? With greed. With aversion. And with delusion. Have you heard, has, have many people heard those terms? Right? They're the three sort of things that burn our hearts. That's the way the Buddha described They burn our hearts and our minds. And they also obscure us from seeing clearly because they're like a filter that gets in the way of our experience. So he's saying that all of our senses, the way we interact with the world, okay, and we process that internally on fire with greed and aversion and delusion. Now, there's another way of looking at the all is on fire. Some of the translations say that the all means the world, the actual literal world on the outside. And that's another way that we can look at the, the, um, the, the, the teachings, which is the world is on fire. Um, and it's because of, there's a, a teacher, Ajahn Mun, who's a, a do you, anyone know Ajahn Cha? Yes? Good. He's, a, he's inspired a lot of the, of the teachers here. Uh, I practice with some of his uh, students in Thailand and him a little bit as well. Uh, very natural teaching. And his, his teacher was Ajahn Mun. He really revived the forest tradition in Thailand in the last century. And um, he says that because, he said the world, the fires of the world burn because of the fires of passion and craving, the fires of anger and delusion. The wars and conflicts we see in the world have their roots in our minds and hearts, in other words. Okay, so this very this link is made often. You know, with, there's the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. There are many ways that this this teaching that the world starts in here. It's very is it's fundamental in the Buddhist teachings. The world is in here. That's what this teaching is getting at, and it reflects out there. So that's why people like Aung San Suu Kyi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, um, the exiled leader in uh, Burma, and the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, Others have committed in a way, have devoted a lot of their lives towards the teaching that peace starts at home, but also being dedicated to outer action. So it's a real expression of this. So let's keep looking right here. Okay? That's where we need to do the looking. So the sutta goes on and says, not only do the fires burn in the sense contact with the outer world, but actually with our minds as well. Okay, with the inner world. So it says, goes on and says, the intellect is a flame. Ideas are a flame. So both the inner and outer worlds, it's all encompassing, actually. It goes on and says, the life cycle. Everything we have in the life cycle, birth, old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, as well as all the joys we have in life. It's getting better and better, isn't it? It's all on fire. There's nothing outside of our experience that is not on fire. That's where he starts from. In other words, the whole house is on fire. It's burning. Wow, you might think. I came in here, I thought I had a little problem with my friend or my boss, and I wanted to work on my 
mind state a little bit, and here you are saying the whole thing's on fire. That's a little bit like someone going to a, 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 doc, a doctor who works with the body, coming in with a minor complaint and, and being told they have a, a terminal illness. Doesn't sound like very good news, does it? But in the same way that the physical, uh, the doctor that works with the body might say, oh no, it's, it's bad news that you may have this terminal illness, but guess what? Since you came in, we diagnosed it now, we can take care of it. You can get in perfect health. And so that's what the Buddha is saying as well. He's saying that we have the possibility uh, to be, if we work, we practice slowly, that we can overcome and uh, we can overcome these where the fires are burning at all the sense doors. We can douse the flames and we can have real peace of mind and heart. So the talk will be dedicated is to how to understand how these fires rage in us, to understand these, these three different aspects of the filters of the fires, and how we can do, come to understand them and work with them okay, in a helpful way. And uh, th- we've, we've introduced two doctors, haven't we, already? Okay? There's, phys- there's someone who works with the body, there's the Buddha, and there's a third doctor that I want to introduce now. There's competition here for our attention. Um, this we'll call Dr. World. Okay? Uh, and this, this doctor is far more insidious. He's the worldly doctor. This is the doctor who tells us the problem we have, because each doctor you go into diagnoses the problem, right? Is that we don't have what we need to be happy with things. We have a lot of things that we better get rid of because they're not making us happy. And guess where this doctor is? Everywhere. It's on TV. It's on the radio. Uh, it's in our minds. He functions day and night. For him, there is no rest. Why should there be? He says, once you get, once you get what I'm offering, you'll be happy, Right? He knows that he's got us because we need things to live, don't we? And so we have to have things. We have to deal with things to live. But what he says is you need. He craves, he feeds on wanting, wanting things and on the feeling that we have of lack. So he deals in the physical world with physical objects, but he's actually dealing with our hearts and minds as well in, in a certain in the way that the Buddha does. So it's complex. He thrives on greed and hatred and delusion. Because let's look at those. What, are those. what are those qualities of mind and heart actually saying? What is greed? It's pulling, right? It's, it's wanting something. It's going after something. And what is aversion? It's pushing something away. And what is delusion? It actually breaks down into a couple of things. It breaks down into the notion of, it's for me, it's all about me, and then we cling to that. So think about how all those things work in, in terms of our relationships to what we want in terms of objects, okay? He keeps, he, he keeps telling us, only if we get that one more thing, if we change one more thing out in our life, and it could be intellectual too, it's mostly physical things, but it could be knowledge in some way too, that just that one thing will be happy. 
He's engaged in the process of us trying to invest our energy in buying happiness, trading happiness, pushing and pulling for happiness. And what he tries to do is cover up the burns, emotional burns that we have in our hearts and minds, instead of healing them. He tries to distract our attention somewhere else. He goes on and on. And we work mighty hard to keep him in business, don't we? His only job is to keep himself in business and to keep growing. So, we're all too familiar with hundreds of examples a day of how we're bombarded. If you buy this toothpaste, your love life will be better. Okay, maybe. Things like if you buy this, if you have this certain cell phone plan, it will actually make the quality of your family life and your social life better. (laughs) And it's seductive. We're being seduced all over the place. Look, I get hitched into it all the time. I actually was watching, it's a silly example, but I was watching TV, and this will will actually show a little bit how it works out. I was watching TV late night. You know, they have these Ginzu knives they try to sell late at night. It's very silly. This one, this was uh, so... I don't even have, this is, I don't even have cable. It's just like regular, you know, one of the channels. And uh, this was one of those Ginzu things, but it wasn't a Ginzu knife. They, they were trying to sell a, a two-sided uh, egg flipper, spatula. It had two sides. So it was great. It was a great concept, because then when you flip it over, it doesn't go splashing on the other side of the pan, or it won't fly, you know, they show examples of flying out of the pan, all these wild things. <laughs> so they say, I, I started to see this in my mind immediately. Now, I want to show you how this works. Okay, we're going to get into, right now, into how these things actually function. Okay? So look what my mind did. Look at the push-pull. Look at, look at how, how these greed, hatred, and, and aversion work. I mean, greed, greed, aversion, and delusion work. So first I thought, wow, this is, I want this. It's going to make me happy. And I actually had this feeling, this, this feeling in my heart of happiness when I saw myself owning this. Okay? I thought, this is great. And then what happened to my mind next? I thought, the one I have is not good enough. <laughs> I've got a regular boring old spatula. It's just one-sided and, you know, I, no, who knows how much grease I've splattered on the stove because of this thing. Okay? So look, immediately look, look what my mind did. It went for something it thought it wanted. It held on to it and it found happiness right there. This is it. It felt happy. And then immediately it pushed away. It pushed away what it had because it thought that wasn't good enough anymore. So there's the pull and the push right in there. It's functioning right there. And guess what else happened? This is, I mean, these thoughts gladly didn't last too long. My mind thought, I'm going to be happy for this. My friends are going to want them too. And I'm gonna, this is, really, is going to help my self-esteem if I get this little spatula. And it all, just a little bit. You know, when you get something really, look, we can all relate to this. You get a nice new toy. Even if it's ridiculous and you're going to throw it out, you, you'll look at it a month later, you say, why did I buy this thing? I never use it. We get it and we want to show it off, right? We feel somehow that it's special and that it's going to make us be special. Me, I'm going to feel special. Anyways, this didn't last long. Fortunately, I didn't pull out the credit card and go to the phone. I mean, I would have gotten two for one. I'm sure they threw in a lot of extra things for free. <laughs> but I didn't go for it. But you can see how it works. It's just, this is just how these energies work. So that's Dr. World. And guess what Dr. World feeds on? Look how my mind, my mind went from the past. It drew, it compared to the past, what was, what was not, like somehow, I, all of a sudden, I didn't, the old spatula wasn't good enough. And then I project out into the future. This is going to make me happy in the future. And I get temporary satisfaction by the image of what I'm going to buy in the present. But guess what happens? Guess what happens? This is, why do we have to keep moving on from object to object? 
Because that temporary happiness and the thought of it, does it last? We'll get to that later, but in my experience, it doesn't last. Okay, that's why we have to keep going. So that's, so we have these movements in the heart and mind, and that's what keeps, that's what keeps Dr. World in business, okay? You can all think of your own examples, can't you? Yes? All right. So if Dr. Buddha and uh, Dr. World were going to have a conversation, Dr. World might accuse Dr. Buddha of throwing away the things of the world that we need to be happy. Okay? But Dr. Buddha would perhaps respond. Uh, he even talked about in teachings for people like us that are lay people, there's happiness in things. There's actually, you can get certain happiness and there's nothing wrong with them. What the thing is, is that the question is, what is the quality of your mind and how you choose and relate to things? Remember, it's all about the mind. Okay? It's all about the quality of our minds and experience. Because greed, hatred, and delusion, they, they're functioning everywhere, right? So if we compare Dr. World and a Dharma practitioner, Dr. World's going to be kind of happy. Even from the Buddha's description, he's saying it's at every level of our experience, these filters, these, these tendencies are there at a subtle level or a gross level. Dharma practitioner wouldn't be too happy. But the Buddha was actually a master of turning a bad situation into a good situation. Right? So how does he do this? Now, according to the sutta, if we carry on to the third sort of movement, the third part of the sutta, it says, the monk, how does he, how does he engage with these? Grows disenchanted, okay, with the greed, hidden delusion functioning at sense contact. Disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. And through dispassion, he becomes fully released. Okay? So it's a very simple movement, actually. He becomes disinterested, dispassionate towards this whole project where greed, hatred, and delusion is functioning at the sense doors. And he becomes released. Released from what, we might ask? Simple, isn't it? The grip of greed, hatred, and delusion. Now the sutta goes on and says that he becomes freed from birth, old age, sickness, death, the whole, the whole package. No more becoming. But one way to look, that's one way to look at it. But what's really practical, he doesn't say how to get there, though. Okay? Now, for some of us, actually, in our lives, let's, let's take a, just spend a minute with a practical. When you get fed up with something, sometimes, this is just what we can draw in terms of our world experience, sometimes when you get really fed up with something, disenchanted with something, does it lead to change? Sometimes we can drop something. Like I had this example, I used to party a lot when I was in college. First couple of years. I was actually known as Chug King when I, was, I went to school out at Tufts. And uh, one day, I was chugging a beer, and I passed out, okay? And when I woke up, I quit. I just quit. My life, I changed my life. I actually went to Europe and discovered yoga and meditation, came back and studied Eastern religion. When I graduated from college, I went off to, I went off to Asia. But there was something in me that was ripe to change, because I actually just, something in me became really disenchanted with the whole project. I became disenchanted with a certain aspect of the way Dr. World works all at once. Okay? And for some of us, can anyone relate to that? Can anyone have, have habits that they really, when they creep up, you feel it strongly and you let go of something? Now, usually, disenchantment doesn't work that way. It just gives us the energy sometimes so we can mobilize our energy and we can work with something that's really troubling us slowly over time. Hope, you know, usually, and I won't go into I have plenty of habit patterns, where you slowly make progress and you slowly go back. That energy can be skillful, okay? but it's a tricky one. 
Because sometimes when we come to practice as well, in the, in, this, in the Buddhist teachings as well, you can think that you can get, you can have like one too many bad hair days. And you can get depressed. Okay? And we can feel not so good. And then sometimes we can even use these teachings to sort of support that worldview, a negative worldview. But that's actually not what the Buddha's getting at. Because when he says disenchantment here, what is he saying? It's with the grip of greed, hatred, and delusion. And how do we go about getting, how do we go about actually loosening that grip on our minds and our hearts? How do we do it? So what would it look like if we did it? What would it look like? There's a wonderful teaching, which Larry talks about sometimes. It's a very pithy teaching that the Buddha gave as a wisdom teaching. Very simple. He said, in the scene, just the scene. In the herd, just the herd. In the felt, just the felt. What it means is in the cognized, just the cognized, etc. All the sense doors, just simply being fully in experience. Now, what would that look like? That would mean that there's no push-pull in the mind. Right? There's an orientation towards the center. We're not, being, we're not drawing from the past, projecting into the future. It's right here. We're fully, cleanly experiencing life right here. Does that sound like relief? So one of the ways we suffer, it's not just the torments of the heart, it's being cut off from life. It's being cut off from the process of our own life. Look, we, all this snow we have, have you, have you really like, enjoyed the snow? Like really cleanly, like taken in the fullness of it? Great, good. So that's an example when the senses are clean, when, we're not, when we're not, they're not being pulled here and there internally. We're present, we're fully open to the experience. And what happens in that moment? Is there kind of nourishment that happens when, when we can do that? So that's what it's talking about. It's called the Dharma track. It's called opening up to the Dharma track. And the teachings are about how to do that. It doesn't say throw out, actually. We're not even trying to put out Dr. World out of business. We just don't have sky high, sky high profits. Sure, he can be in business. Sure, we need things to live. But we don't have him to control our minds and hearts. Okay? So we want to be able to access that place of being cleanly, directly in life. And not, not split off from it. So that's, for me at least, that's one of the greatest ways that suffering comes into life. It's alienation from oneself, from people that one's close with and other situations. It's like not fully meeting life. So these are filters that get in the way of that. And so how do we access this in the scene, just the scene? It's through the capacity to see into experience very cleanly, moment by moment. That's what we're doing here. It's called insight meditation. Insight means, it means special seeing or it means seeing into. Okay? It means seeing into. And then when we do that, the nature, when we see into experience cleanly, the nature of that experience actually arises. It moves. It changes. And something else in the mind and the heart opens up. So just do an experiment. It's a, you've heard it a million times. But listen, listen I'm going to strike this little bell once. And I want you to see if you can hear it just fully, cleanly, until it's totally done, okay? Just stay with it, until it's absolutely finished. Okay, now I have a question. <coughs> when it finished, when it went right through to the end, was there, 
Any space in the minds? Was there, was there a little bit of quiet after the sound ended or not? Or was it really busy? It was too subtle. Did anyone experience that? Did anyone experience a little space after the sound? Yes? A few people. Okay, good. So what is that? We're turning into seeing into experience right there. Okay? So what it's saying is that in a way, if, if we're still staying with this analogy of, of, of Dr. World, <laughs> Dr. World keeps our minds busy. It keeps us running here and there. You might call it ADD mind, okay? <laughs> We've all got it in a certain way. Running here and there, being busy, wanting this, pushing away that. We don't stay with anything cleanly and fully all the way through. And so when we do this a lot, it gives the perception of solidity somehow, right? It gives the, it gives the perception that we somehow are solid, the more we do it, the more we think, oh, I have to have this. I can't, pushing, pulling all the time, and it's happening to me. The fundamental teaching is that we're at, at a certain level, we're actually misperceiving reality. All these factors of images and uh, memories from the past, images, projections into the future, the actual needs of our lives getting mixed up with the perceptions of, of, of that I need this to be happy, that I have to stay safe. Okay, all these things getting all mixed up in a tight cluster of me and mine. What comes out of that often is misperception. We don't actually see. We don't actually see what we need. We actually don't, we, we don't have the space to see. We don't see, we see compactness. Like you heard the end of the bell, right? You heard it through and then there was space in the mind. When the mind's busy and tight, when things are happening so fast and we're all clustered around and there's no space. The Buddha's talking about peace, so there's space in the mind. And there's no space in these, in these situations. Now, it's like we keep tricking ourselves. We keep doing it to ourselves. Why? The fundamental thing, we, there's the push mind, the pull mind. There's the mind that imputes. It somehow imputes solidity. It imputes a stability on all this cluster of things. And we believe it. So one way we do this all the time is by uh, papancha. Okay? We get these things going in our head. And we have, to, we have to hold on to this identity somehow. We do it all the time. So we have conversations with ourselves just to keep ourselves occupied. It's not like we're not, we're not really wanting to be in quiet in the mind. I certainly have conversations. I don't need to talk with somebody else. It's happening in here most of the time, right? I mean, you wouldn't believe, I'll tell you a story. When I went through to, to, to do this talk, I was on retreat. I had a self-retreat for a better part of the last month. And I decided I'd write the talk on the retreat. So I spent all this time, and a lot of it was just this self-claim because I write it. I was doing a lot of meditation. I wasn't really in a linear mind. <laughs> so I'd write a little bit of a talk, and then I'd write a little bit more, a little bit more. I came up with all these little piles. Guess what? I got a little bit here, and I mostly scrapped it. Because today I was reflecting, I was like, wow, this is one big movement of me holding on to a sense of identity. A sense of, like, I'm going to be okay if I just hold on to this. Okay? It's, re- it's referring to me. I wasn't seeing clearly. The Dharma isn't about how many objects you can hold in your mind. It's about having space in the mind and then using the objects well. So I was walking back in the middle of the big snowstorm the other day. I was walking back from Harvard Square. I live nearby in Cambridgeport. And I was walking back at night, and I was, I was walking along the river. It was late, and I was by myself. And I started hearing this swish-swish noise. And I started getting afraid. Okay? I started getting afraid because I thought, oh, someone's right behind me. And I, you know, I've never been mugged or anything, but <laughs> still, I was afraid. You know, it's just survival, whatever. And then all of a sudden I realized this was, I had my snow pants on. <laughs> and my legs were swishing back and forth. <laughs> okay, and I, what happened at that moment? 
It was similar. So this is the movement. We have, to, we have to see into experience. It starts to break apart their space. It's similar, it was similar to the movement of hearing the sound of the bell. Okay? I just, that, that sense of clutching, it kind of dissolved. It's just kind of dissolved in the sky. You know, the, the snow was beautiful again and it was, it was a nice night. And, okay? So it's fine to do this with a bell. How do, we do it in the, how do we do it actually in the fire of our life? How do we see the push-pull? How do we actually break apart? How do we see the movements of the mind and the heart in a way that we see them change, actually? Because when we're in the fire, when we're in this, we don't see it, right? Sometimes we get little glimpses, and one way of practice is a real natural way. It's just we learn, it's fundamental, we learn to appreciate impermanence. Okay, we learn to accept it and appreciate it. In ourselves, actually. In all these areas where greed, hatred, and, and every single area where we have sense contact with ourselves and others, we learn to appreciate the nature of change in our experiences. Hmm. How's that sound? <laughs> it sounds like a concept, doesn't it? We know it on one level, but we don't really know it deeply. It's hard to know it deeply. Ajahn Chah said, impermanence rules the world. We think we do. There's this song from the 80s, I think it was, you know, anyone know the band Tear for Fears? Everybody wants to rule the world. So that's it. This is this clutching eye, right? Everybody. And this is saying, yeah, it's saying, actually what happens is that the, the change rules the world. Because no one can escape it. Dr. World can't escape it either. Neither can Buddha, nobody. It's just change is happening. But the Buddha is saying if you see into it, then you can open to something that is bigger than it, which is peace in the mind itself. So that's our job. And if we can apply it right in the push-pull of life, that's a great way to start. That's a great way to do it. I mean, one way to, if you want to like take it as a practice, sometimes you can take an object, say that you're familiar, some object that you pass often. Like, I was doing walks on this retreat, and I, there was this nice patch of green grass in one of the warm spells. It was a while ago. <laughs> and uh, the first half of the walk, I went by, I loved it. I was like, oh, I want, I want it to be like this all winter, da da da. And I, by the second half, 40, 40 minutes later, I saw another patch of green. I was like, I don't want that. Come on, it's supposed to be white, it's supposed to be winter. In, I had a different relationship. I had a push in the mind, right? I had a pull in the mind, I wanted it. And I had a push in the mind in the same, to the same object within 45 minutes. So it's saying these things themselves are not permanent, they actually change their functioning in our minds and our hearts. So the Buddha gave a classical teaching. So if we can do it in daily life, great. You know, it's like if you're sitting in the store and you don't know whether you need to buy that thing or not, that's, you know, that's, like, that's the rub, right? That's one place where it's a rub. Okay, do I need this? Do I not need this? Oh, good for this. Oh, wait a minute. And then what do we do? It doesn't, even if we buy it or not buy it, that's actually not. It's like how, how much of our energy is being tied up in that movement? It's like the push-pull of the mind. It, it sort of gets us off balance. Let's say we're in a boxing match. It gets us off balance. There's a lot of boxing movies these days. And, uh, and then the notion of I, the clinging comes in and knocks us out. Boom, we're flat. We're not in the present. We're gone. We're somewhere else. All right? But guess what? Anicca, that's impermanence. It's the law. So guess what? That passes too. And then we're back in the moment. A wonderful teacher from Thailand, Ajahn Buddhadasa, said, the birth of the self or this cluster of I, of all these things we cling to, this I notion at the center of this, it passes, it rises and passes itself. It's not permanent itself either. So all of it is. So just, just see, maybe, maybe on the edges, if you, have a, if you have pulling or pushing in a strong situation, maybe just one, once in a while you can really see something cleanly all the way through. 
And just see what happens after that. See if there's a moment's space. All right? We can feel it with, if we're getting hot in a situation too, sometimes we can just feel that whole, that whole constriction that comes with it, the cluster of emotions. Sometimes it changes. A lot of times it doesn't. And so we keep going on and on and on. The more we strengthen it, okay, the more, the more it's there. The more we can see into it, the more that it can change. The Buddha taught us, he gave us, he said you need special circumstances to cultivate the capacity to see and to experience. He gave a formal practice. It's actually the third foundation of mindfulness. It's called citta, which means mind, citta-nupasana, or looking into the actual movements of the mind, the heart, as a practice. So you can actually watch the movements of, of greed, of aversion, of delusion, or any number of things. Now, that's not the first foundation of mindfulness, right? That's the body. Or the second foundation of mindfulness, which is feelings, pleasant, unpleasant. Those are more easy to access, generally, for most people. So when we work with the mind directly, the Buddha is saying you need conditions to do this. He's saying that for the whole path, actually. So how do we create the conditions? And that's what I would like to spend the rest of the talk on, is how how did the Buddha actually talk about creating these conditions? And so what he did is he talked about, we know these, right? There's, 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 three, there's three trainings that he talked about. And one is that we want to create in our lives um, kind of a simplicity. Because you notice there's two basic movements here. There's the movement of clutter. There's the movement of being preoccupied with past and future. And there's the movement of the mind that can stay with something and see its impermanence. And so to do that, we have to give ourselves space. And the way we give ourselves space is, one, we take a look at how we're actually living, living our life, our whole life. It's called, it's called the ethical component. It's called sila. So how do we kind of simplify the conditions? Or not, that doesn't mean necessarily take anything away, but just within the parameters of our lives, how can we be sensitive to how we're using the things in our lives so that we, we create the conditions where the mind can settle down a little bit? Okay? So for myself, I do, one way I do this is I, I, I work with yoga. To me, it's always been a wonderful way to balance my body internally and, and, and work with my internal systems and be in health. It's been a compliment. So that's, that's like just take, sort of taking care of my internal health, finding a balance there. Relationships, you know, there's many levels of it. But it's where the, it's where the teachings, it's the foundation that's really important. And then from there, we work with what? With concentration. With, with stilling the mind. With working to calm the mind down a little bit. And then we can see when the mind's a little calmer. So some people, when I rang the bell, you didn't get the pause at the end, right? Okay, probably not. Your mind might have been somewhere else. Your mind might have been caught up in something. So that means the mind wasn't probably in a very quiet place. So concentration, that's what we do with our object. We work with the breath. We work with the body. We work with any number of different things to help calm ourselves down. And from that place of calm, we can see more easily. We can, we can appreciate we can appreciate impermanence at a more moment-to-moment level in a way that can open up those spaces in the mind and the heart. Okay? So there's, a, there's an analogy um, to describe, the way to describe this I kind of like uh, when I was thinking about it. It's, it's like a stage set. Okay? Let's say, just going back to, since we're working with, with uh, the push-pull mind, right? the pushing away, the pulling mind, and the mind that clings, a sense of I. Uh, that there's a stage, and on the stage, these are, we have the, the actors are, are, let's say, greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay? They're the main, and they want to take over the whole stage. And mindfulness wants to get in there and kind of 
maybe make a little more space in there so we can see them clearly. But the mind, listen to it. So the analogy is the stage itself is the mind. Okay, that's the space of the mind. There's a certain amount of, that's the space of the mind. And the only reason that, the, that, we, got, that we got these actors of, of greed, hatred, and delusion to be on the stage, okay, the only reason they came on there is because we had ethics. We had the surround so that they actually stayed in one place. We got them, we got them corralled a little bit so we could take a look at them. Otherwise, they're running everywhere. We've got, you know, if we don't take care with our life, it's just, it's, it's gone. It's just everywhere. We don't, it's fine. And that's fine if we want to, you know. You got to be careful. Whatever doctor you want to go to, you know, we've got to choose our doctors wisely, but we can choose any way we want. <laughs> so, so, we've got, so we've got the stage, right, which is the ethical surrounds, and then we've got the characters on it. And the props, there's the, the stage is filled with props too, and that's the objects. That's the objects of the, of the, that, that we, you know, that buying this and pushing away that. And greed, hatred, the reason that the sutta is, is laid out in terms of its relationship to objects is because we feed on objects, is that greed, hatred, and, and delusion, they feed, they work with objects, okay? That's how we get this seduced. It's by objects in the mind and in the outside. There's nothing wrong with the objects themselves, but that's, that's where they get their strength. The problem is, is that delusion means they get their strength there, but they take our strength. They take our life force. Did anyone see the movie, uh, The Matrix? Okay, it was a good movie. I actually saw it twice. But there's a scene in it when, you know how the whole matrix is upheld? You get these life forms, right? This is, it's not, I don't like the image at all, but it fits with this. <laughs> you get these, these life forms and you stick them, they all, get, they all get stuck in little, not little cells, what are they? Little locked in cubicles or something, like chickens or something, I don't know. They're all locked in there and they, so they're human beings, okay? And they, they don't, they're just, and what they do is the matrix is, is uh, maintained by the matrix sucks the life force out of them, right? It's like the life force of human beings is keeping this matrix alive, but they're not, but human beings aren't alive. And that's, that's, what, that's what the image is, that's what the, the, the Buddha even said, it's better to be alive one day fully mindfully than it is 100 years. You know, the, the image of the Buddha is someone who is awake, okay? So just on this level of the Dharma track that we're talking about, this clean, clean crisp relationship to life, He's saying that we get sapped, our internal energy gets sapped if we invest our happiness in the objects that we relate to internally and externally. If we actually put our self-worth in those objects rather than in the quality of the mind and the heart itself. That's the basic, that's the basic tension that's going on. Nothing wrong with the objects. So then we're feeding. That's, the objects on, that's like the objects on stage. They're feeding greed, hatred, and delusion. So... Inside of us, this is all going on, right? Now, it sounds like a battle, doesn't it? <laughs> it kind of sounds like a war. So how good is the image? Let's, let's say that the greed, hatred, and delusion are the, are the enemy. What's the usefulness of that image for practice, for our actual practice? And what's the danger in it? Well, the usefulness in the image of, an, of having an enemy is one thing is that it, makes, it gets our energy up, doesn't it? it if, we have an ener- if we have an enemy, then we have something to fight against. So we can, get, we can get aroused, okay? We can get our forces together to fight that enemy. The problem with having an enemy is, on one level, is that oftentimes we give strength to the enemy. When we try to fight it, we're actually giving it energy as well. We're putting our energy into that, into creating an enemy. And if delusion's involved, 
if we're ignorant, if we're not seeing the situation clearly, then there actually might not be an enemy really there in the way we perceive it to be there. But we're putting it on there, so our energy is going to fight something. So that's sort of the, that's the danger in it. it can, the strength is it can give us energy. But we, if we don't see clearly, then it can actually give energy. It's like, it's like in, if we take greed, hate, and delusion as the enemy, then it's like, let's say terrorists are the enemy, okay? It's like greed, hate, and delusion, all these little terrorists running around inside of us. <laughs> They're inside of us. And so how much, are we gonna, how much energy are we going to give them? How much energy are we going to give to them by making them an enemy? Okay? We can get energy to, to work against them. That's, that's important sometimes. But there's a danger in it. So how about the other side? What good is it to make friends? Okay? Can we, what do you think? Do you think it's a good idea to make friends with, with these forces in us that we might, you know, we think are ruining or getting in the way of us living crisp, clean lives? Well, it's great if we can do it. It's great. There's a Rumi poem, I think, that says, you know, welcome everyone in. Have them, invite everyone in for tea. So when the mind's in the right place, when the conditions are right, yes, okay, the mind is clear and strong. What happens if we're not in the right place and we invite in? And say greed, hatred, and delusion here, the way I'm using it, how, how does it come out? It comes out in our conflicted emotions. It comes out in the impulsive natures that we have that, control, that, that really you know, th- that our behavior patterns are thinking that's over and over again. It's not just an external objects. It's not objects of the mind and the heart, too. Okay? That's, it's really important to remember. So what happens if we're not strong enough and we're not open enough and we can't see clearly and we invite them in? Well, first they might come in and they might just not want to leave when we tell them it's time to leave, right? Then they might drink all our tea. And, you know, and if they, they really get established, they might take over the whole house. <laughs> they might try. They might even try to wreck the place. So we gotta be careful as well. If we're in the right place, yes. What we really wanna do is see them clearly. That's really what we wanna do. And so how do we do that? How do we see them clearly? We learn to appreciate, it's really simple again, we learn to appreciate the fact of their changing nature. And the way we do that is we learn to appreciate the space around them as well. Now let's say we're engaged, let's say we're still on stage and we're engaged, we're engaged with these things. And let's say, or let's say we're, we invite them into the house and they're running amok. What do we do? Well, then we go to, if, let's say we're watching, let's say we're doing practice and then we decide to start looking. We're not just watching the breath, we're opening up and we get overrun. What do we do? Well, you know the image of a forest fire? What is one way to stop a forest fire from spreading in one direction? You create a fire break, right? So when you have a forest fire, you cut down the trees in a certain area you know, around on the outside. So the, the, for, the fire can't jump to the other side, right? So in a way, that's what our concentration, our samadhi does. If the fires are burning inside of ourselves, our thoughts, our repetitive thoughts, whatever, if it's something has really got a hold of us, and if we can come back to our breath or to whatever we're using and create a space, then guess what? Temporarily, we're free from them. It's not going to put out the fire. Okay, the fire can spread in other directions still. We need the cool rain of wisdom to do that. But what it can do is it can stop the spread. And the cool rain of wisdom comes from what? It comes from this capacity of the heart to be open enough when the conditions are right so that we can allow whatever is there to come up and then we start to see it in a different way. So let's say that on the stage that the characters of greed, hatred, they look really fierce, right? And they're going back, they're running behind objects and getting lots more fuel and they're coming out 
showing themselves. Well, slowly we'll take away if if we if we stay if we start to create a little more space, then we'll take away their we'll take away their objects that they hide behind that they feed on. We won't give them our life energy, like in the image of the matrix. We're not going to give that to them anymore because we're going to replace that with mindfulness. That's that's going to be in our minds. We're going to be resting in our hearts and minds instead of in objects. When we start to do that. The obj- the objects that that they feed on, they're not there's not so much clutter in the mind. They're not there, and they start we start to see them more clearly. They reveal. They start to show themselves. Maybe it ends up they'd be like the, emperor, the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> Maybe there's nothing really there so substantial. One of my teachers that I worked with for many years, and I like very much, Joseph Goldstein, has this wonderful image at Halloween that these, 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 these things, let's say we'll call it, you know, again, push-pull minds, eye-clutching minds, that they're actually, they're like kids at Halloween. They come all dressed up. They come all dressed up in scary outfits, you know, Oh, if I don't, you know, whatever. If this person I'm in a relationship with doesn't act this way, then I'm going to, my mother left me when I was four and, and I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. Whatever. There's something that we, we're clutching to some really fearsome image that we hold and it's being imputed on experience now where it really doesn't match. Right? So that's like, that's like one of these kids all dressed up, coming up. But we see it. We see it's a kid just dressed up. Oh, okay, that's not real. There's some energy there, some life force there. That's what's there. But I don't have to believe this. That's where we start, you know, it's like when I was walking in the snow and, my, and I didn't, I got over this, I was perceiving clearly at that moment. Okay, it's an energy, it's a scary energy. Or it's a, okay, it's a pushing mind, it's a pulling mind. It's a sense, okay, I'm, I feel solid here. But that's all it is. So when that happens, when we start to see that, okay. They're kids, they're life forms. We can have a relationship with them, right? We can actually have a relationship with these parts of ourselves. So in a way, nothing actually has to be, has to be left out. And so then we can just take off these labels of greed, hatred, ignorance. We can take them off. We can see life as energy, as flow. Because really, everything, it's changing, and there's space in the mind. And one way to appreciate, in practice, one way is, is to appreciate the spaces, is to appreciate the gaps, the spaces between things. Um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, this monk from Thailand, said that there's little, it's called little nibbanas throughout the day, little spaces of being cool, like at the end of a breath, or the end of a thought, the end of an emotion, or just when we're walking, when the mind, there's a recognition at some level that the mind is calm and cool. And nibbana actually means going out of the flame. So it can be used in the big sense, Right? No more greed, hatred, and delusion. And it can be used in a moment-to-moment sense that the mind is just cool in a moment. So can we start to open? It's like opening to the Dharma track as well as being in the world. Can we start to open to that quality of the mind and heart so that we can be nourished by something that's intrinsic to us okay, and not in the objects? And then it's not an, an either-or. It's not a push-pull. It's this is just something that I, that I want to honor. And then what happens... You can, you can learn to rest in the space where the mind is a little bit wider, a little bit deeper. There's nourishments that's coming. The senses are cleaner. But it doesn't mean the objects, it means we can appreciate the objects, but we don't need to be, we don't need to be caught by them as much, whatever they are. Now, it sounds ideal because it's, it's tough work, right? It's hard to do when we get caught. It's really hard. But that quality of appreciation is really important. Um, you know Chogyam Trungpa? He was a famous Tibetan teacher. He held up a, 
he held up a board once, I guess, and he drew a little bird in it, held it up for students, and he said, what's there? Everyone said, you just drew a bird. That's what you'd all say, right? That's what I'd say, except if you know the story. <laughs> and he said, no, no, no. I drew a bird in the sky. You just didn't recognize the sky. So that's when we start to tap that quality of the heart, which opens up when we see clearly. We get tastes of it through concentration, but it's a little different quality. They work together, okay? They work together. So can we learn to appreciate experience and not, so whatever it is, it can come through. We can appreciate the textures of it. Even maybe a salesman. <laughs> Someone who's trying to sell us something, can we, re- we maybe even relate to them as a human being, right? And not necessarily just the push-pull of, of the objects involved. So it's a different orientation in life. It's a different, it's a different way. It's, a different, it's opening up to that. And practice helps us with that. That's, that's the fruits. That's, how, that's how, uh, how we can benefit in practice. And then um, I'm just about done. I just want to, last thing I want to say is, uh, remember the image I gave in the very beginning of the talk um, of being in the kitchen and getting burned by the stove? Now, a couple ways you can do, you can deal with that. You can get out of the kitchen, right? And sometimes it's good to do that when we're in the fire of life and we're really, we're getting burned. It's good to take a break. That's what concentration can do. That's what coming to places like this actually do, right? We're not getting bombarded in here. Well, we get bombarded by what's inside here, <laughs> but not from the outside at least. And so there's that, there's that level is we can get out of the kitchen, but what? We want to go in that kitchen. The stove's there for a reason, isn't it? We want to be able to cook some good food in there. Right? We want to be able to put on, you could say we could put on the mitt of mindfulness if we need to. <laughs> but we want to know how the stove works because we want to cook some good food and be nourished in life. Okay? All right. That's it. <laughs> That's it for a minute. Okay. All right. So again, thank you very much for coming out on this uh, cold and snowy evening. And for those of you who want to go now, it's a good time. And if you'd like to stay for question and answers, we've got about uh, maybe 20, 25 minutes. If you have any questions about the, the sutta, the teaching, or anything else, I'd be happy to do my best. Questions? Please. Uh, you said this was the, uh, possibly the Buddha's third sutra or mm-hmm. teaching. Uh, what were the first two? Well, I look like a Buddhist scholar here. <laughs> um, from what I understand, okay, this is, I, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, okay? And hopefully the talk, the talk was aimed to be really a practice talk as well. Uh, and, but I understand the first one, I think, was the Dhammachaka Sutra, where he just laid out, I think, the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, the Four Noble Truths. No, Anapanasati was much was later, I think. The Four Noble Truths, uh, I think the Eightfold Path. So it's the Dhamma. It's turning the wheel of the Dhamma, starting it. And the second one, I think it was the Anatta Lakana Sutta, which is a, the teachings of, of no-self, which is right, this sense of clinging, this eye fixture. So are you interested in the study of the early, the early teachings? Uh, there's actually a 
of the Sackler, uh, they actually have copies of sutras from oh, right. thousands of years ago. Okay. So these are like 25, 2600 years old, these, these teachings. So it's from the, the Theravada tradition, the early sort of in the, the early Pali canon they were put down in. So yeah, but that's, that's my understanding. And uh, if you want to ask Tanisaro Bhikkhu who comes next week, he's the expert. <laughs> so I got it wrong, but I think, I think that's the order. Please. See if I can phrase my question. Okay. Yeah, Buddhism, what Buddha said, all this stuff about little people entering our minds and uh, finding a quiet space. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of suffering in the world. Yeah. There's an awful lot of suffering. I, my personal opinion is we do... We, I think a lot of people cope in the best way they can. Basically. And we need crutches. People need crutches in different ways. It, it depends the level of the crutch. So, are you... You know, are you... How do they cope? They cope or they don't? I mean, every, everyone has their own story. Uh, can you... But I mean... I can't give a general a general answer. I think that we're, we're hardwired to do the best we can to survive. And we try. We try. And if that means being drugs, that means fine. People can get addicted to meditation. I mean, there's a, I think, at least from the Dharma point of view, there's attachment. There's cling that goes on. And that's, that's our lives. And we can cling to things that are healthier for us or that are less healthy. And the teachings, I think, are proposing that you can actually hold on to things. You can learn to hold on to things differently. And you can hold certain things in certain ways that help you to actually become free from the holding process itself. That's an act of faith. Um, It's an act of experience when it happens, but it takes faith to practice. It absolutely takes faith to practice. And if you could, I mean, that's that's too, like I'm talking to you, and I'm wondering either in your own experience or someone you know that you're feeling compassion for, you know, maybe that's where your question is coming from. Um, I don't have an answer for the suffering in the world, you know. I mean, the Buddha himself said not, you know, there's not that many people that will probably get the teachings and become fully free. It's not an easy teaching. You said it sounds nice and airy-fairy. I think it's actually practical. For me, it helps me to work with the tough stuff in my life. My mom left when I was six. (laughs) And I've been dealing with abandonment stuff my whole life to be perfectly, you know, to be very personal and honest. And at times... Mindfulness really helps me to see it. And at times I get overwhelmed and I act irrationally and project out on situations when it's not skillful to. And I burn myself and I burn others. And so that's, it's hard work. It's like being in the trenches. It's just for me, it's like, how quickly do you get up? And, and what do you do? You know, what do you need for our escape mechanism? What do we do? So that's all I can say is that I work with that on a personal level and I try to use the teachings to help me with that. They're like anything else. You know, why does someone do drugs? Tell me. Well, one is physical addiction, perhaps, but right. they go to it because they're, they're looking to get out of, them, out of their 
other situation. That's right. You know, they're surrounded on all sides, and it's full attack, and that's right. take the helicopter out. You know, that's, true. that's right, and it's a sad choice. Yeah. Because why? It doesn't add to the quality of their life necessarily in the long run. You know, I've known people that have gotten out of drug addictions, too. By their willpower, by karma, by something. Other people by programs. Some people don't get out. Some people go in and out. I, I mean, karma is a tr- If you're talking on that level, I certainly don't have an answer. And actually, even from the classical teachings of the Buddha, he said, if you want to try to figure that one out, it'll actually drive you nuts. No, I mean, he just, from a practice point of view, there's like four things, I don't remember what all of them are, that'll actually drive you nuts. And that one will drive you nuts if you, on that macro level. But on the micro level, we can deal. And so if you have anything specific, we can go further with this. But otherwise, that's what I can offer. Please. Hi. You mentioned the, uh, the, the putting out of the flame, that, that brief, um, that spacious quality. Nibbana is the... the Nibbana, it's actually, it's, Nirvana is the Sanskrit word. Not the rock bands. Not the rock bands. Yeah, it just means little, it means basically that there's, there are pauses in the way that the mind functions. So that there's, there's coolness in the actual structure of how we go through life. We just don't, we just don't orient the mind to notice them so much. And, and we orient ourselves, I didn't probably go into it fully enough, we orient ourselves by paying attention. It's clear. It's like, why did you hear this pause after the bell? Because you paid attention to it, right? Yeah. So have you noticed that in your own life? I mean, it's an interesting concept. It, it brings the teachings down to a very moment-to-moment practical level. Because sometimes the teachings can get very, you know, like it can get out there in terms of conceptual level. I want to be free. It's going to make me this. It's, it's gone. It's another something that's not real. But when we bring the mind right back and we start to notice that, it's very practical. I think, I think my experience with it has been um, like a glimpse of it mm-hmm. and then maybe not even noticing that, it's, that it happened and then noticing it and saying I want more of it and wanting that window of spaciousness right. to open up or happen more frequently. So if you have faith, <laughs> to go back to faith, if you have confidence in the teachings, Right? then you would try to create the conditions where that would be more likely to happen. See, you notice, even in the, even in the description, any experience that we have that we like, that's how we're wired. Right. We, we want it. Right. We want more of it. We want it back. Right. And then, and then we're, we're suffering right in that moment when we want it. That's, that's, the, cling, that's the clutching mind again. But, right? well, yeah, going back to Dr. World, it's also yeah. like when you don't have it, it's sort of like, oh, I miss it. Or, I'll, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so, so that um, it's, it's kind of like we have to get used to, to, to functioning in a little different way with ourselves. We have to get used to having a quietness in the mind. We have to let it work on us. We have to, you know what I'm saying? We have to honor those moments. But look, if, if Nibbana, let's say enlightenment, but these are like little mini you know, and, uh, experiences of quiet in the mind. If that's, one teacher said it's an accident. We can't, right? It comes. It comes when attention, when the conditions are there. But practice makes us accident prone. It makes us accident prone. It creates the conditions. If we're sensitive in our lives, if we try to live with sensitivity, just try, okay? And if we 
work on cultivating the environments where we can calm our mind down. And we create the conditions and we really try to see into experience and allow there to be space. Then the, it's more likely that it'll happen. It's more like a welcoming rather than a desiring. Or... You can desire it. I, don't, I actually think that having no desire is actually a misconception. In the, I mean, it's not a misconception because it's really clearly in the teachings actually that there's a desire that puts the end to desire. But there's a desire that puts an end to desire. Look, the only reason we're here is because we want something, right? Maybe we want nothing. Like, you know, the, the Dalai Lama, everyone see that postcard? I got it. My mom sent me this for my birthday one time. There's a, there's a uh, birthday gift, the postcard of a card. The Dalai Lama got a gift. Someone came and brought him a box. And he opened it up and he said, ah, oh, just what I always wanted, nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like that, but he, just what I always wanted, nothing. Get it? <laughs> so look, we, but we, we actually have to learn to appreciate that, that quality of the mind and heart. But it's a, so we want, to, we want to create the conditions. We want to create the conditions where it's likely. If we're really suffering and we want to get out of suffering, the sutta talks about it, actually, quite directly. If you're disenchanted with the habit patterns of the mind, then you're going to want to put the mind somewhere else. You're going to want to. You're going to want change. Change doesn't happen without... We're going to continue to function in the habit patterns we're in unless there's something that makes us change. Desire is a catalyst for that. It's just that, that it's tricky to work with the word desire because you can, you can hold objects and hold them in a certain way and not be bound by them. So you can, not, but not, you can hold something in a way that's skillful to hold it, or you can hold something in a way that's really grasping and clutching. And so it, it's more that, it's more that relationship. And so if you find that you're holding these experiences, really, like, I got to have that, and it's causing you more suffering, you got to look at the way you're holding it. You got to look at the way you're holding the project. Maybe you're too tight. But you can still have a desire for that spaciousness. You can, yeah, but how do you channel that desire? What do you do with it? Yeah, or you say, okay, what am I going to do? Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put energy into practice, into, create, into actually paying attention to the way I live so that I can create the conditions where it's more likely to happen. But then, this is not even the teaching from the Buddhist tradition, it's from the, an old Indian tradition. It says, don't be attached to the fruits of action. In other words, you just put the energy into creating the conditions and see what happens. If you do this for five, ten years and nothing happens, unless you're a person with a lot of faith, you'll try something else, right? <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> if you're a person with a lot of faith, you might do it the rest of your life. Who knows? <laughs> if you've got no faith, you might come here for one Wednesday night talk, I didn't get enlightened and never come back. <laughs> but that's confidence in the process. You have to, my feeling is you've got to have enough taste of the fruits to keep you going. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just work. It's a whole, and even looking, if you start to incline the mind towards impermanence, for example, that's putting energy into a way of inclining the mind. That's actually called right view. You start to actually, oh, you, you just work a little bit with seeing, think, looking to see things in a certain way. Now, if you look to see them that way, that's not freedom. But it's putting the mind in a certain way which might work into freedom, right? So um, where we put our mental energy is going to condition how we see experience and what we do with our energy is going to condition the type of change that happens in our life. Right. right? So just keep, it sounds like you're in it, you're working with, you're working with teachings, you're, 
you know, it's in your life, you're working with it. What, it's, I mean, unless there's some really big, you know, doubt you have or question you have or push and pull in either way. If you want more of it, look, what's wrong with having a good thing? The silence itself, you know, does anyone have a favorite ice cream shop? Yeah, I do. Actually, Tuscanese is coming to mind, but Christine's is pretty good. There's a whole bunch of them. Anyways, you go in, you go in, you get an ice cream, and you love it, right? And then it, what happens if you go back for two more that day? You get a bellyache at, at best. So what happens if you have silence? And then you get another hit of silence later on, you notice it. And you get another hit. Do you get a bellyache? No. <laughs> but... If, or, or whatever it does, get shower, gets deep, it'll do whatever it's going to do. But guess what? If your desire gets in the way, if you have the experience and then you start desiring it, then that's your mental bellyache. So you've got to see the impermanence. It's right there. That's where the, that's where the watching is. It's like infinite watching. The watching is in that movement of the mind itself. Is that, is that itself permanent? Does that, just notice that. So it's like nothing is outside. When we're actually practicing nothing and the mind is really practicing, there's nothing outside its gaze. It's just in the same way that the sutta was talking about there's no place where push-pull, clutching mind can't function. There's no place that seeing clearly can't function. There's no place freedom can't function. It's, it's inf- the possibilities are infinite. But we have to keep the mind in that, in that mode of watching, of being interested. That's the passion. Talk about dispassion, that's the, that for me, that's where the passion is. That's where the, the teaching is leading to. It's a quiet, like Larry talks about, it's a quiet passion. It's the passion in observing and seeing what happens in that movement. So apply it there too. Okay. Yeah. Is it, is it fair to say that during breath, in breath awareness meditation, you're substituting, okay, the sensation of the breath for other types of thoughts, okay, which might be, okay, aversive or, you know, desirous or something like that. Is, is, is the breath being substituted here? Is that the way to look at it? For the mind being put for, somewhere else? For other objects which might uh, instill greed or hatred or delusion or, or, or be heavily imbued with self or something like that. That's one way to look at it. That's an interesting way to look. What's, do, you work, do you work with breath awareness? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I do, you know, 45 minutes or an hour mm-hmm. a day. Okay? But, but the other thing... So what do you notice, just, just to go step by step, no, what do you notice is, what is the effect that, that, that watching that object has on your mind? Watching the breath, like what? Just notice in the process of it afterwards. Okay, so it's a calming object. You can concentrate whatever whatever you know object we concentrate on. It's like we kind of pick up the energy. It's there's a, there's an interface. It's like in science, if you're if you're doing an experiment and you, you you work with something, you actually there's a there's a transfer somehow. Like if if you're studying something, you change that by the nature of your looking at it. It works. Basically, there's an interchange. So. If you, whatever you, whatever you concentrate on, that has an effect on the mind, it's very simple. So that's why, one reason, that's why breath is chosen a lot. You, I think you put it pretty well. It's not better or worse, it's just that, that that object has a nature of neutrality, of calmness, generally. And it's a natural object, so we don't have to create it. There's a lot of advantages to it. The other thing is, is that it can be used as an object of wisdom as well. An of, of wisdom, not just of concentration. If you see clearly, you can see the beginning, you can see the changes in the breath itself, and in watching the changing nature of it, that itself, not just as a concentration object, but that can free, that can open up the mind itself. I mean, it's said that the Buddha actually got enlightened on it. I don't know of watching the breath, but 
I, I really, I really don't know. But there's, there's a little second part. To please, please, of course. So, so let's say now you have another type of practice in which you're really not watching the breath. You're more or less watching whatever comes up. Sure. Okay. Choiceless awareness, something like that. Pardon? Choiceless awareness, or perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, okay. The guy, the guy who was a Soto Zen practitioner here a few months back, okay, you know, mentioned that that was his what he did. Sure. Okay. Um, that was my first school I practiced in. Yeah. I was curious about that, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I was thinking to myself, okay, so what in that kind of a practice, okay, I mean, you know, if greed, hatred, or delusion comes up, mm-hmm. how are you, how are you uh, substituting something else for them? You see what I'm saying? I, it, it confuses me a little as to what that means or what it is. Okay, so the first, if it's a pure concentration practice, okay, then you're taking an object and you're focusing on just that object. That would be the breath. In a, if you're doing a Soto practice, all right? And if, if you're, look, it's, there's two ways to practice with concentration. One is to pick a specific object. And then one is to take no object. It actually goes to the, the Diamond Sutras in Mahayana, a, a later school of Buddhism. It means you take nothing. It means don't let the mind alight rest anywhere. Basically, it's a very high teaching. Because to do that well, just to just sit, Without any object, the mind has to be brilliantly quiet and still to actually do that. So what it, ter- what it turns out being is a kind of sort of vipassana practice. Not really. You just let the mind be big. You're sitting. And then whatever comes through, you just don't attach to it. What's motivating my question here? Yeah. If you're watching the breath, if, if your meditation is a breath awareness meditation, I mean, at some point when you're dying, that breath is going to stop. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you know, at that point, now you're going to perhaps, okay, be supplying, okay, um, in any sensory deprivation chamber, okay, you, the brain starts to s- supply its own stimuli, all kinds of crazy hallucinations or anything. You put somebody in a flotation tank. Okay. Have you done this stuff? I haven't. I read about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting out there. <laughs> Now you've got another situation. Has your breath stopped in meditation? No, no. Okay, we're <laughs> good. But, but the point is that we talk okay. a lot about dying here. The Dalai okay, Lama good. talks good. a lot about the state. No, it's a good, okay, good. That's um, a good reflection. And so I was just wondering what meditation is under circumstances. If you've done the breath all your life, okay, mm-hmm. well, what's meditation under other circumstances then? You see, that's sort of what's motivating my question, okay. right? Okay. And I, and I recall the Soto Zen guy saying, well, you know, we don't watch the breath. Right. Okay, good. Good. That's great. Now, now I understand your question. <laughs> so the, if you look at the overall picture of practice, I understand it. The breath prepares the mind to be still. That still mind then is fit to be with whatever arises. There's a strength in it. There's a buoyancy in it, which is created through that concentration. But it needs, then you open it up. So they're actually very complementary. For example, you watch for the breath, and at a certain point, and it's, it's the practice that's done here very, as well. And you can work that way. You do the breath for a while, you open the attention up. Calm down some, open it up. Okay? And then if the mind gets very scattered again, right, and you need to, and you, can, you bring it back in. So it's, ideally, it's preparing the mind. It's preparing the mind. The breath itself leads other places. Right. Well, like, for instance, with mental noting, when things come up, 
try to you should try not to get identified or attached to them. Let's say a thought comes up, right? So sometimes people want to note it. They can say, well, that's a, well, yeah, you know, that, that's a, a fantasy of the past. Okay, it's a thought. You know. So it's a third practice. That's noticing, that's noticing the rising and passing away of experience. It can be used as a wisdom practice. It could also be used as a concentration practice in a certain way. So that when things get close and you notice them, they don't overwhelm you. And you create like a little shield, like that mindfulness glove we had with the stove, right? You create that. That's another way that, that noting can be used. These are all different techniques. What I recommend is, is that whatever, whatever you're working with... I just watch the breath, but other yeah. stuff is very... Okay, so it sounds like it's more at this level, an, an intellectual interest. Yeah. yeah, but look, practice prepares us to get into death. Practice prepares us. A lot of, some people actually do practice their whole life, so they'll be prepared in their minds for the moment of death. That's one way to look at practice. And then you can take it and you can say, look, we're being born and dying every moment. Are we showing up for our life now? The more we show up now, the better we'll be prepared to show up then. That's kind of the... That's what the practice says. So if we can really cleanly be with the breath and then use that to move through life in a way where we're really present, then we're going to show up for that way when we die. If, there should be life before death you know, as well as life after death. Well, it's just preparing the mind. It's just, it's, just, you know, it's just looking at the quality of the mind now and whatever habits we strengthen now, it's more likely those will be present at the time of death. It's really what it's about. So if you, pra- if you start practicing when you're 20... You'll have that much time. If you press start practicing, you know, whatever it is, you'll have that, and whatever energy you put into it, that's the momentum we build up. We carry that into when we die, our dying moment. Simple. Well, thank you for that comment. I think we'll close with that. That's a good reflection. Okay. Thank you all for coming. And uh, travel safe. What? Yeah. I'll be there. 7 a.m. You coming? All right. You think. Okay, if you can get up. (laughs) All right. I hope the Dharma has warmed you, but not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.